السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Last week we were on Surah Al-Kafirun and we had done the vast majority of it and we covered uh, in our last lesson verses 2 to 5, verses 2, 3, 4 and 5 which are uh, as we said, somewhat repetitive verses, uh, basically the same concept is repeated four times in, with slight variations, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, La a'budu ma ta'budun, wa la antum a'abiduna ma a'budtum, wa la antum a'abiduna ma a'bud. And we mentioned uh, the position of some of the scholars, or the position of a number of scholars, as to why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala repeats this concept four times within the surah. And we said just to recap um, that some of the scholars said that the difference between the four statements is that you couple the first two and then the second two. And the first two are to show that this isn't something that will happen in the future, nor is it something the last two verses or the second two of that set is to show that neither is it something which happened in the present or the past. So the first two verses, I will never worship what you worship, nor will you ever worship what I worship. What you worship, nor do you worship what I worship. So the first two verses is for the future tense, and the second two verses is for the present and past tense. And this was the opinion of, as we said, Shaykh al-Islam, Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala. And then you have the second opinion or the second view amongst some of the scholars of tafsir, which essentially just switches the tenses. Switches so that the first two are now present and past, and the second two are future. So I don't worship what you worship, you don't worship what I worship, nor will I ever worship what you worship, nor will you ever worship what I worship. All they've done is switch the two. Right? And he said, that this was the opinion of some of the scholars of tafsir, including Al-Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah. So the reason why they've gone into this level of detail, as we said, is because of this issue of, is there something called tikrar in the Qur'an? Is there a concept of repetition in the Qur'an? Is there something when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala repeats a verse <coughs> in uh, detail, when we spoke about repetition in the Qur'an, <coughs> Excuse me. When, I sp when we spoke about repetition in the Quran, whether that be repetition of a word, of a verse, of a concept, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala repeats something, what is the benefit or the purpose of that repetition? And we said that many of the scholars said that Allah Azza wa when He repeats something, there is always an additional benefit, there is always an enhanced meaning within that repetition. So whether that be the verses that are repeated in Surah Al-Rahman or in Surah Al-Mursalat, or be it for the repetition that we have here in Surah Al-Kafirun. There is always an added meaning. The question therefore that always comes is, what is the added meaning? What is the interpretation of that repetition? So here in Surah Al-Kafirun, we have these two groups of scholars, if you like. One of them says that it's future, then present past. The other one says it is present past and then future. And all of them are trying to get to the same thing. And that's why there are other scholars who try to between them. And this is, if you like, a third opinion. But it is trying to reconcile between them. And they said that there is no 
there is no reason why it can't be both. Right? Whether you put the future tense first or the past tense first, it equals the same meaning. Right? The only difference is that some scholars have chosen to take a certain tense first and the other one second, and other scholars have reversed that order. But essentially, it amounts to the same thing. And that is, as Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala said in his tafsir of these verses, that Allah Azza wa Jal is making it explicitly clear that, is not, that it is not even a remote possibility that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would ever worship the gods of Quraysh. It's not even something conceivable. It's not even something that is worthy of consideration. And that repetition, repetition is there to show them that there is no chance. Because if someone says no once, that's one thing. But if someone says no twice, and then three times, and then four times, and then five times, you're left with no doubt that that person is completely rejecting the idea. Right? Kind of like these Brexit votes that we, we have going on at the moment. Anyway, so the whole issue of this, therefore, is what? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as Imam Qurtubi rahimahullah is saying, he is giving a very clear indication that this proposal, as we said, as we mentioned in the narrations of the cause of revelation for this surah, the Quraysh coming and proposing, oh Muhammad, our gods for a while, we'll worship your gods for a while. If you're on some good, we'll benefit. If we're on some good, you'll benefit. Allah Azza wa is saying that's not even a remote possibility. So this issue of giving up what is the basic concepts of Islam and the basic foundations of our religion is not something which we can compromise on. Those thawabit, those usul, the, the mental principles of Islam, the greatest of them being what Allah Azza wa mentions in the surah and that is Tawheed, is not even something that we are able to consider. It's not even something that you can consider to negotiate upon and that is what Allah Azza wa is saying within the surah. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concludes the surah and he says, لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ You is your religion, and for me is mine. And Allah Azza wa does this in other places in the Qur'an. Right? But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say, for you is what you have, for me is what I have. Right? For example, in Surah Al-Qasas, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَنَا أَعْمَالُنَا وَلَكُمْ أَعْمَالُكُمْ For us are our actions, and for you are your actions. In Surah Yunus, Allah Azza wa Jal says, verse 41, وَإِن كَذَّبُوكَ فَقُلْ لِي عَمَلِي وَلَكُمْ عَمَالُكُمْ And if they reject you, if they call you a liar, then say to them, for me are my actions and for you are your actions. So this is where we part ways, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying here, لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ وَلِيَدِينُ All of that, everything that Allah Azza wa Jal mentioned, what is the conclusion? For you is your religion. And for me is mine. And Imam al-Bukhla said, Lakum deenukum, for you is your religion, meaning for you is disbelief. Waliya deen, and for me is my religion, meaning for me is Islam. And Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, said something similar. For you is your religion, meaning for you is shirk. And there is no remote possibility that I will ever come upon shirk. Meaning the Prophet is saying, I will never ever come upon shirk. And for me is my religion, and that is Islam. If you stay upon what you are upon, then there is no way that you can accept my religion or that you will become a Muslim. That is the tafsir of the majority of the scholars. That the word deen is a literal translation of the word, and that means religion. 
for you is your religion and for me is my religion. There is another opinion among some of the scholars of tafsir that the word deen here means al-jaza, reward, recompense. For you is your reward and for me will be mine. Right? And it is similar in meaning for nonsense in the sense that obviously if people are upon disbelief and people are upon Islam, then in the next life on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, each one of those decisions means a certain reward, right? Or a certain consequence. And so as Allah Azza wa says in the Quran, فَرِيقٌ فِي الْجَنَّةِ وَفَرِيقٌ فِي السَّعِيرِ A party will be in paradise and a party, a party will be in the fire. That is the recompense, that is the result, that is the consequence of the decision that is made in this life in terms of iman and disbelief, in terms of belief and disbelief, Islam and kufr. So that's, that's why some of the scholars, they, and it is very similar again, but they are interpreting the verse, not by the literal meaning of the word religion, but rather by what its consequence will be on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And that is that the reward that you will get, for you is your reward, meaning for disbelief is the fire of hell, and for me is my reward, and meaning, that for the believers it is Jannah and Paradise. And that brings us to the end of the tafsir of Surah Al-Kafirun. There is one final issue <coughs> which some of the scholars of tafsir mention and it is usually mentioned in the books of Ahkam Al-Quran. And as we said, Ahkam Al-Quran refers to the fiqh rulings that are derived from the verses of the Quran. And this is, as we said, a whole science of the Quran in and of itself, and it is a, a if you like, a subcategory of tafsir, in the sense that it is mentioned sometimes in the books of tafsir, where they speak about the fiqh rulings that Allah Azza wa gives in the Quran. One of the fiqh rulings, therefore, that um, comes about as a result of this final verse, lakum deenukum is a, an issue which some of the scholars picked out, and that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes religion as being essentially two. The first is Islam, right? And that's something which is repeated in the Quran. Islam, The religion in the sight of Allah is Islam. And then you have every other religion. For me is my religion, meaning Islam. For you is your religion. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't specify, but he generalizes. As if every other religion is Therefore, one and the same. And that is maybe perhaps similar to the verse in which Allah Azzawajal says, وَمَن يَبْتَغِي غَيْرَ الْإِسْلَامِ دِينًا فَلَنْ يُقْبَلَ مِنْ Whosoever chooses a religion other than Islam, it will never be accepted from them. Right? So for me is my religion, for you is your religion. Scholars, uh, the fiqh ruling that they derive from this is do we as Muslims consider every other religion apart from Islam to be essentially one and the same when it comes to rulings? Or do we treat them individually? Or do we categorize them in different ways, right? And you may think, okay, but what's the point of that? You know, what's, what is the benefit or the thamara? What is the fruit of that discussion? What's the point of that discussion? It comes in terms of rulings. For example, when we, uh, for example, when we are talking about uh, non-Muslims inheriting from one another. So Muslims do not inherit from non-Muslims, non-Muslims do not inherit from Muslims. 
but can non-Muslims inherit from each other if they too are from different religions? Or do we consider them all one and the same? So a Christian inheriting from a Jew and vice versa, from a Sikh, from a Hindu, from a Buddhist, from uh, you know, anything and everything else. Are you going to answer the question or you have a question? There are, there are obviously certain restrictions, clearly, in the sense that if you look at it from a fiqh point of view, Allah Azza wa says that it's allowed for Muslims to marry from Ahlul Kitab, right? And to eat from the meat of Ahlul Kitab. So the food of the people of the book is halal for you, your food is halal for them. And likewise, the chaste women from the believers are halal for you and from the Ahlul Kitab are also permissible for you. So clearly there is, right? Restrictions in certain issues. But here the question is now a more generic one, right? And, and this isn't something which should obviously apply for us in the first instance, but just as a fiqh discussion and only because it is mentioned in the books of fiqh, and therefore, like I'm bringing it to, to our attention here. Um, and, and the best example that I can give is the one of inheritance, where it's Jews or Jewish family member wants to inherit from a Christian family member or from a different religion. Do we consider them all one, so therefore they can all inherit from each other? Or do we say no, actually no. Jews are different from Christians, are different from Sikhs, are different from Hindus, and so on and so forth. Right? Obviously, if they're from the same religion, there's no difference of opinion, there's no issue. If they're all Christians or Jews, then clearly that's a simple issue, straightforward. The scholars differed over this issue, and it's not something which we want to go into a lot of detail always concerning, <coughs> hint, hint. But it's something which, uh, which, because it's mentioned in the books of Tafsir, like I'll mention it very briefly. The first opinion, and this is the opinion of um, the Hanafiya and the Shafi'iya, I think it was, Yes, the Hanafi and the Shafi'iyya and the Riwayah and the Madhab of Imam Ahmad is that they are all one. All of these religions are one. Meaning that all of them, you know, we consider them, they can do, they have their own laws, they can inherit from each other and so on and so forth. It's not a problem. And they take that from this verse. The evidence being this verse, لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ وَلِيَدِينُ Allah Azza wa says, for you is your religion. And who is he speaking to primarily, as we said? speaking to the kuffar of Quraysh, right? So let alone Jews and Christians, they're speaking to people who are polytheists and pagans and so on and so forth. For you is your religion is, and for us is our religion. And this is a point that uh, Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah ta'ala, uses as well in speaking about this issue. The second opinion is that actually each of them are their own religion. Each of them are their own religion. And so they are treated in that way and there is a hadith that is collected in Abu Dawood and Al-Nasai and Ibn Majah that the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam لا يتوارث أهل ملتين شتا The people of two different religions do not inherit from one another. And he's speaking about the non-Muslims, not the Muslims. And obviously the Muslims are included in this as well because we are of different religions. People from two different faiths and religions do not inherit from one another. And I think this is the opinion of the uh, famous opinion of the Hanbali Madhab. And it is the opinion because of this hadith that many scholars also opted because they said that this hadith of the Prophet. The point here isn't really to go into the whole fiqh discussion, but
but to mention that this is an example of scholars deducing rulings of fiqh from verses of the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions an issue. And by the way, when it comes to ahkam al-Quran, there are verses that are very explicit. So when Allah speaks about prayer and wudu and hajj, those are explicit verses of rulings. But then there is also other verse, verses in which the rulings are implicit, like the verse that we have here. But it's not a, you, know, you wouldn't think that it's a verse of a ruling concerning this issue, but obviously the scholars deduce and derive from it these rulings. No, no, no. So the, the, the hadith doesn't refer to sects within religions. Yeah, it refers to the religion itself. Because now if you're going to start going through the whole sectarian issue, then, then even amongst Muslims you have that problem. Right? And so that becomes extremely uh, convoluted and complicated. Okay, any questions on Surah Kafirun in general? Yeah. Yes. So we mentioned last week that one of the other statements from some of the scholars of tafsir in terms of why we have the repetition in Surah Kafirun is that the first two verses لا ma ta'budun ma refers to the action of the worship right? it refers to the action of worshipping other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then the last two verses, refers to the theoretical, the theoretical concept. So it's as if the Prophet ﷺ is saying, or being told to say, in the first two verses, that this isn't something that I would ever physically, it's not something which I would adopt. Nor in the last two verses or the second two verses, nor is the concept of this, even as an intellectual uh, proposition, even as a debate, even as a consideration, theoretically, it's not something which I would consider. And that's something which, again, the scholars are essentially, again, trying to do the same thing. Why is it that Allah Azza wa has repeated something, right? And this is something which we will uh, come across, obviously, a number of times when we come into Surah Rahman, before that Surah Mursalat. Um, you know, you have examples of this even in Surah Qari'ah, where the word is repeated three times. Um, surah Takathur It is like there, there will be many instances in the Quran In which this is done We have a couple of questions online Haris uh, With the hadith Where the Prophet ﷺ said you, can, you can't inherit It seems very clear and explicit So how can there be a opinion the issue of why there's differences of opinion amongst the scholars of fiqh is a whole different long discussion as to why the scholars of uh, why the scholars of fiqh differ even when there seems to be a clear hadith and that could be for many reasons number one some of those scholars weren't aware of the hadith number two they may consider the hadith to be weak number three they may consider the interpretation or the explanation of that weak it's con the context of that hadith to be different in terms of its understanding. There are many, many, and, and this isn't the place to go into all of those discussions. If a Muslim does inherit from a non-Muslim, what should be done? Huh, give it back. <laughs> uh, I, again, I think this is a question which you're better off speaking to a local imam. These like require, like you need to look into the issue in detail. 
and look at exactly what is the, the situation before you, you give her. Sumer asks the question, why would other religions inheriting from each other be an issue for the Muslim courts to have to decide upon? I.e., would the courts not just let them decide based upon their own texts? <clears throat> and what was the context of the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ cited that two different religions cannot inherit from one another? So again, this is uh, it's a theoretical debate in the sense for us because it's not really an issue that applies to us, but it's something which obviously the scholars of Islam go into <clears throat> when it comes to the issue of other religions coming to us. It's because they can choose if they were living in a Muslim country, as it happened in the time, and even in the time of the Khulafa, when there were people who were non-Muslims living in Muslim lands, sometimes they would choose the Muslim courts for their issues, right? They would come to the Muslim rulers and they would ask them to adjudicate over their issues and their affairs. So that's where then it now becomes an issue in which the rule, because obviously if you come to a Muslim court, the Muslim judge isn't going to judge based upon the texts of the Christians or the Jews or the laws of other religions. He's going to do it based upon Islam. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, really off topic, yeah. So, and that's why I was, I was very reluctant to actually bring up this issue. I even said, waste. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, Samir asks another question, the clumping together with the religions as one religions per the ayah in Surah Al-Imran and Surah Kafirun, is that not more to do with Jazain al-Akhirah? Yeah, it is obviously to do with the Akhirah, but it's also to do with the Ahkam of the Dunya. So you can't just have one and without the other. It is, it is, it is to do with both. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Otherwise, I think this discussion will continue. Any other general questions, not fiqh-related questions? Yeah. Related to the inheritance. There we go. So it is a fiqh-related. That's a whole long, long issue, man. That's not even inheritance, that's divorce. Yeah. You're talking about divorce, not inheritance. Yeah. Come and speak to me later. <laughs> Alright. So, Surah, any questions? Any other questions on Surah Kafirun? Yes, sorry, before I forget. So, um, the notes, so we finished the next uh, dispatch of notes which covered Surah Masad, Nasr, and Kafirun. And now the next batch of student notes um, or study material can be found in the study material uh, in your portal. So if you go to Quranic uh, Prophetic, Quranic Progression.org or Prophetic Guidance.org. Dot online. Come on, man. Prophetic Guidance.online or Quranic Progression.org and you sign in. You go to study material, inshallah, you will have the, um, the, you go into the tab, study material. It's normally in the notes section, but it hasn't been uploaded, inshallah. Tomorrow it will be available there. But for today, it's just in the study material section. Okay, so we're going to begin with Surah uh, Al-Kawthar. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inna a'atainaka al-kawthar. فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَانْحَرْ 
إِنَّ شَانِئَكَ هُوَ الْأَبَتَرُ Allah says, indeed, we gave to you, meaning the Prophet ﷺ, Al-Kawthar. Now, if you look at the different translations, and we've done this a couple of times, but if you look at the different translations of the Qur'an, you will find different um, translations for the word Al-Kawthar. So, for example, uh, Muhsin Khan, I think Mufti Taqi Uthmani, and others, they just simply use the word Al-Kawthar. They just write Al-Kawthar. And Sahih International, was it the other way around? Someone, anyway, some of them just write Al-Kawthar. Some of them write a river in paradise, which I think Muhsin Khan does that. He writes Al-Kawthar and then in brackets, writes a river in paradise. And others, like uh, Professor Abdul Halim, they say, indeed, we have given to you an abundance of good. An abundance of good. We'll come into that, inshallah, in more detail. But the point is that there are different translations. If you look at the different uh, translations in English, you will find variations as to how they translate the word al-Kawthar. Why that is, we'll come on to later. So pray to your Lord and sacrifice to him. Indeed, your enemy, the one who hates you, the one who reviles you, the one who makes you angry, all of them will be cut off. And again, the word shani' is one in which the translations differ, which is why I gave a number of them. But we'll come on to that, inshallah ta'ala, in more detail. So Surah Al-Kawthar is, as we know, the shortest surah of the Qur'an. As Imam Al-Bayhaqi, rahimahullah, mentions in his sunan from the famous scholar Ibn Shubruma, rahimahullah ta'ala, that he said that there is no surah that is less than three verses. And as we said before, there are three surahs that fit that description. Suratul Nasr, Suratul Kawthar, and Suratul Asr. And out of the three, in terms of number of words, the shortest, all three of them are the shortest surahs of the Quran. But in terms of the number of words, the shortest from the, the three would be Suratul Kawthar, which is why often it is described as surah of the Quran. Suratul Kawthar is known by a number of names. The first of them is obviously Al Kawthar. The second name that it is also known by is the first verse, Inna a'atayna kal And as we said, this is something which is very commonly done by the scholars of tafsir. And the third name that it is also known, perhaps not so well known by, is Surah Al-Nahar, which is taken from the second verse, Fasalli li rabbika wanhar, which means the surah of, what does Nahar mean? Sacrifice. The surah of sacrifice. Nahar with a ha, not with a ha. The ha, it becomes river, it becomes, it becomes sacrifice, right? Importance of doing tajweed. Right. So, but its most famous name uh, is as we now have Surah Al-Kawthar. The scholars differed over whether this surah is Makki or Madani. And Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions both. He says it is a Madani surah. He says that it is a Madani surah, and then he says, Waqila Makkiya, but it is also reported from amongst the scholars of Tafsir that they said that it is a Makki surah, meaning post Hijra and pre Hijra, as we've explained a number of times before. And Imam Al Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala said that the scholars who say that it is a Makki surah are Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, Abdullah ibn Zubair, radiallahu anhuma, Aisha, radiallahu anha, Muqatil who's one of the famous scholars of Tafsir, they were of the opinion that the surah is a Makki surah. And amongst the authors of Tafsir, or the books of 
Rahimahullah and Imam Suyuti, in their two respective tafsirs, they also championed this position that the surah is a Makki surah, meaning that it was revealed before the hijrah of the Prophet to Medina. And then you have the other opinion or the other view, which is the one that Imam Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, supported, and that is that it is a Madani surah, post hijrah surah. And this was the opinion from amongst the scholars of tafsir of Imam al-Hassan al-Basri and Ikrima and Qatada rahimahumullah and others. The question therefore is why is there a difference of opinion? Why did the scholars differ over this issue? Always. Okay. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, there and thereabouts. The that it is a Madani surah, post-hijrah, they refer to the ahadith in which the Prophet ﷺ spoke about this river which he called Al-Kawthar, right? From them is the hadith of Anas, and we're going to come into, when we go into the tafsir of the first verse, we'll go through these ahadith in more detail. But from them is the hadith of Anas in Sahih Muslim, in which the Prophet ﷺ, he says the Prophet ﷺ was just in the masjid and he was overcome, meaning that he had a time of revelation. Because when the Prophet ﷺ would receive revelation, they say that he would be overcome in a way that they, you know, they would describe as ighfa'a. He's overcome. He's in a state of revelation, receiving revelation. And then after that, he smiled. Meaning after that state was lifted from him, he smiled. So we said, O Messenger of Allah, why are you smiling? So the Prophet cited Surah Al-Kawthar from the beginning to the end. Why does this, this hadith, why did the scholars say that this hadith show that this surah is a Madani surah? Why do they take from this hadith that the surah is a Madani surah? Yeah. Because Anas is a companion, was there for the Medinan period. Right? He's from the younger companions and he only became a companion after the hijrah. And also because he says that he was amongst us in the masjid, meaning the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. So therefore that's the view of those scholars. And there are a number of hadith, by the way, that we will mention that seem to show and they seem to point to the surah having been revealed in Medina. The scholars who say no, actually a Makki surah, and remember from amongst them are senior companions like Aisha, and Ibn Abbas who yes are very senior companions but are also from the younger companions right each of them really only comes into their own in the Medinan period right none of them are from the early Muslims Aisha is an early Muslim but she was very young in the Meccan period she only becomes the wife of the Prophet and a narrator of hadith in the Medinan period Abdullah ibn Abbas after the conquest of Mecca, Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiallahu anhuma was born in the Hijrah, born during the Hijrah itself. So therefore, he's also a very young companion of the Prophet But they said that it is a Mecca surah. Why do they say it's a Mecca surah? They look at verse number three. Inka huwa al-abtar, the one who is your enemy will be cut off. And they say that this verse was revealed concerning certain figures, certain people, like Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab 
and Uqba ibn Abi Mu'id, and Al-Wa'as ibn Wa'il, and others that we will mention when we come to verse number three. And because it is speaking of them, these are figures who appeared at what time? In the Meccan period. Abu Lahab, Abu Jahl, these are the enemies of Islam in the Meccan period, so therefore the surah is Makki. However, the answer to that is relatively straightforward. That just because they were the enemies of Islam in the Meccan period, the enmity also carried over right into the Medinan period. It's not like when the Hijrah took place, the enmity stopped. Abu Lahab carries on, Abu Jahl carries on, Uqba, all of them continue their enmity. So therefore, it is possible that this Medinan, the surah is a Medinan surah, a Madani surah, referring to people from the Quraysh of Mecca because that enmity continued afterwards and because there are a number of hadith that seem to show, and Allah knows best, uh, that this hadith was revealed post-Hijrah in the city of Medina. Uh, another interesting point, um, and this is, isn't really to do with the tafsir, but it's something which I thought was interesting. Uh, Ibn Abi Shayba in his Musannaf, Ibn Abi Shayba of the hadith, of hadith, he has a great collection of hadith called the Musannaf, Musannaf Ibn Abi Shayba. Anyone know what the difference is between a Musannaf and, other than Uwais? and Sunan, and, and like these other books of hadith. What's a Musannaf? What makes a Musannaf different to like Bukhari or Muslim or Abu Dawood? Yes. It's not just a collection of hadith, but it is a collection also of the statements of the companions and the tabi'een and others as well. And that's why many of the narrations that we have <coughs> from the companions and their opinions and their views and also from the scholars of the Tabi'een are collected in books like the Musannaf of Ibn Abi Shayba, or the Musannaf of Abdul Razak and others, right? And that's what makes it because in the books of Hadith, Bukhari, Muslim and so on, yes, they mention statements of the companions, but they are done as just additional notes, not as narrations in and of themselves. They're done by way of explanation or they're done as, you know, just narrations that are supporting narrations. The books of Sunan are there primarily for the Hadith of the Prophet So anyway, the point being here, Ibn Abi Shayba, rahimahullah, in his Musannaf, he mentions upon the Umar ibn Maymun, that when Umar an in his Khilafah, when he was assassinated, when he was stabbed during the Fajr Salah that he was leading, and the man came and he stabbed him during the Salah, and then Umar an collapsed, who came and took his place? Abdurrahman ibn Auf. Was standing behind Umar, and as we know, this was a practice in the time of the Prophet and the Khulafa, the Imam, were from the most learned of the companions. Just in case, I mean, this is an extreme example of needing someone to take your place, but if the Imam breaks his wudu, if the Imam needs someone to step in, there's someone there who knows what to do, right? Rather than, you know, I think often would be the case in our time, where if that happened, the person behind me would be like, whoa, you know, what do I do, right? I just got here because it was empty. I don't know what to do. So, and that's why even today, if you go to Mecca and Medina, in the two harams, behind the imams, they always have a reserved space, three, four, five places that are always reserved, right? So no matter how early you go, you can never sit directly behind the imam. It's always reserved. Why is because of people who will stand there? So if the Imam makes a mistake in his recitation, if the Imam makes a mistake or he needs to leave because he broke his wudu or whatever the issue may be, 
there's someone there who knows the ruling and knows what to do. Anyway, the point being here, Abdul Rahman ibn Awf an stood forward, took the place of Umar an, and he completed the prayer. Why am I mentioning it here? Because of the two surahs that he recited as a fajr in order to complete the prayer and complete it quickly. The narration says that he recited surah, yep, the first one, surah al kawthar and then surah Ida Ja'a Nasrullahi wal Fatih. In order to speed up the prayer and finish it quickly. So I thought, I mean, that's not really anything to do with the tafsir of the surah, but I thought it's an interesting, interesting historical point um, just to be aware of. So, verse number one Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna a'atayna kal kawthar. And Allah Azza wa begins the surah with inna, which means inna means indeed, verily, surely, certainly. It is in Arabic known as harfu tawkidin wa nasb. A letter or a word is used for emphasis, to emphasize something. There are three surahs in the Quran that begin with this word, inna. The first of them is obviously surah kawthar. The other two are surah al-qadr, inna anzalnahu fi laylatil qadr. And the third one is surah inna fatahna laka fatham mubina. Three surahs of the Quran that begin with inna. And each of them, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the word inna, it is to emphasize something extremely amazing, extremely important. Something that is there to give not only the Muslims the notion that this is something which is crucial and important, but also primarily for the Prophet, for him to know that it is extremely important. So if you look at Surah Al-Fatih, إِنَّا فَتَحْنَا لَكَ فَتْحًا مُّبِينًا Indeed, we have given to you a clear and manifest victory. What is this referring to? The Treaty of Hudaybiyyah. How when the Muslims signed this treaty, and the companions, nearly all of them, more or less, 1,400-odd companions thought, and it was a bad deal, a raw deal, a deal in which the Muslims were stripped of their rights, and the Quraysh had all of the benefits of the treaty, and the Muslims had hardly any of the benefits, and all of the companions felt hard done, that after all of these years of st strife and struggle and hardship and tests and patience, they had now come to this situation where now it's almost as if everything that they made, all of the progress, has been taken away from them. And only the Prophet wasallam, and you can argue Abu Bakr an, only very few are there who understand the significance and they have that solid uh, certainty that this is a good thing to do. It is something which when the Prophet signs the treaty, Allah reveals a verse of the Quran and a surah that speaks about this treaty. But look at the way that Allah begins. Everyone else thinks this is bad. The Quraysh think they've won, right? They've got the upper hand, they've done, they've pulled a fast one, they've They've managed to take everything that they need from the Muslims without really giving anything in return. So the Muslims can't make Umrah that year. They have to go back. They have to come back next year if they want to make Umrah. Anyone who's a Muslim is no longer allowed to leave Mecca and go to Medina. And if they do, they have to be returned. But anyone who leaves Medina and comes to Mecca and doesn't want Islam doesn't have to be returned. Different laws that they had, even when it came as, you know, to the writing of the treaty, the actual writing and the terms of the treaty, they were being pedantic in terms of you can't write Muhammad Rasulullah, you can't write Bismillah Rahman Rahim. 
And then Allah Azza wa reveals this verse and he begins it with inna, indeed, meaning that there's no doubt. There is no, you know, there's no um, sense of, 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 of doubt or any, any type of trepidation. This is for certain a great manifest victory. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives this to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Muslims. In Surah Al-Qadr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna anzalnahu fi laylatil qadr. We have revealed, indeed, we reveal this Quran to you during Laylatul Qadr. To show the importance of, to show its status, to so, show the status of the Quran, that the greatest of the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was revealed on the greatest of all nights, of the greatest of months in the month of Ramadan. And Allah Azza wa shows the, the honor of the Quran by honoring the time of its revelation. Obviously when the Quran was first revealed, the first time it was revealed, there was no Ramadan, the Muslims were fasting, and the Muslims were unaware of the concept of Laylatul Qadr. This is a surah that is speaking about a historical event about which the Muslims weren't aware of its significance at the time. And then you anzalnahu fi Laylatul Qadr. And then you have Surah Al-Kawthar in which Allah says, and indeed we have given to you Al-Kawthar. Right? And again, this is as reward for the Prophet all of the hardship and the strife that he's gone through, all of the tests and the challenges and the difficulties that the Prophet has experienced. And often when we see those challenges or the challenges that we experience ourselves in our lifetime and we look at what we've taken from it and we look at the, if you like, the materialistic, uh, materialistic result of that, what we've taken and benefited from it, often it seems like it's not much. It's very less, it's paltry, it's insignificant. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying to the Prophet who wasn't rich, he didn't have palaces, didn't have lots of livestock, didn't have you know, gold and silver, didn't have fine clothing. The Prophet ﷺ would have, as we know, months where he would just survive on dates and water, and months would pass by, and he wouldn't like to fight. He was extremely poor. And there are a number of narrations, as you know, in which the Prophet ﷺ would often come home to one of his wives and ask them, is there anything to eat in the evening? And they would say no. Or they would say, only this bowl of milk, or something very small. Or one of our cousins, or one of our relatives, or one of the neighbors, or one of the companions came, and they gave this a small bowl of, of such and such food. It's all that they had. And there are narrations in which the Prophet ﷺ would wake up and he would say to one of his wives, is there anything to eat this morning? And they would say no, and he would say, for any sahib, then in that case I'm fasting. Meaning if there's nothing to eat, you're going to not eat anyway, you may as well fast for the day. And that is how the Prophet ﷺ used to often fast his nafil fasts, his optional fasts. Despite all of that, We have given to you Al-Kawthar. And we'll speak about what that means in more detail, inshaAllah ta'ala. Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins this surah with the word inna. Inna, as we said, means verily or indeed. The alif at the end means we. Inna, indeed, indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he says that he does this to show obviously emphasis, but to show also that what is about to come, Allah Azza wa begins the verse with inna to show that what is about to come after is something great for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
just as Allah Azza wa Jal did in Surah Al-Qadr. One for the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah and the other for the revelation of the Quran on the night of Al-Qadr. So Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is speaking about the, uh, the sharaf, the honor of what Allah Azza wa is going to bestow upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now we know from the Sunnah and from the Seerah that often when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would go through something extremely difficult and hard, an extremely difficult phase of his life, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala would always give him consolation with something amazing in return. And this is the way that Allah Azza wa always is with the believers. You go through a period of hardship and difficulty. You maybe you lose someone that's close to you. Maybe you're having financial difficulty. Maybe it's health problems, whatever it may be. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then always gives to you if you remain patient and you turn to Allah and you thank Allah and you come close to Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always gives a period of ease. He always gives you something in return and it's not necessarily material. It's not necessarily something which you can, you know, you, you can buy with or sell with. But it is a sign that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with you. Allah azza wa gives you that sign. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like for example, as Allah azza wa mentions in Surah Yusuf, when Yusuf alayhi salam is left for dead and thrown at the bottom of the well. What does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? And we told Yusuf that a time will come when you will tell your brothers of what they did to you. You will tell them what they did. That is a sign from Allah that despite all of the difficulties that you're going through and these challenges, there will be a time when you will be the one who will overpower them. You will have power over them. And that's a sign from Allah. Yusuf at that time doesn't have anything, sold into slavery. It's not something material that Allah has given to him. It's not angels that have come to help him. It's nothing that he can actually hold on to physically. But it is a sign that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to him. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often does. So for the Prophet وسلم, after the death of Khadija radiallahu anha Abu Talib, the Prophet وسلم, is taken on the Isra and Mi'raj, the night journey. He goes from Mecca to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to the heavens, and he speaks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Goes through a period of extreme hardship, and then Allah gives them ease. Right? The companions migrate, migration is difficult. They have to leave behind their homes and their families and their land and their wealth. And the companions are split up often in some cases from their own family members. And they go through a period of hardship and resettlement. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them the victory of the battle of Badr. Always with that hardship comes a period of ease or a sign from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So with this particular uh, narration, it is mentioned in some of the books that it is um, that it was given or this verse or this surah was revealed after the death of the son of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Ibrahim. I don't know if that is authentic, uh, Allahu Alam, I don't know how it isn't, but it is uh, something which Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala will often give the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam after a period of hardship. So whether it be the death of his son or whether it be the general uh, situation of the Muslims in Medina, that are going through hardship after the battle of Uhud and the battle of Ahzab and all of these other things. The Prophet وسلم, throughout this period is also going through his own challenges that he وسلم, has. The test that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts him through. And so Allah then gives to him this. And again, it is not something 
that the Prophet can take now. It's not something which he takes at that moment. It's not something which he takes physically. It's not wealth that he can use for his armies or his companions. It's not food that he can use to feed himself and his family. It's nothing, but it is a sign from Allah that what you will have in return is far greater than anything that anyone else possesses. And that sign from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is greater for the believer that you will have your reward in full with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is greater for the believer than just you know, getting money or wealth or power or whatever it may be that we may covet and want from our desires. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins this surah in this way. Inna. Allah Azza wa says, Inna. Indeed we. And when Allah begins the surah in such a strong way, it is within it or there is within it an indication that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has power over everything. That Allah Azza wa controls everything. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna, we will do something, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing us that He is the one who has control and power over everything in the heavens and the earth. And when Allah Azza wa wants to do something and He decrees man something, there is nothing in the heavens and the earth that can withstand that. It is the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Wallahu yahkumu. When Allah commands, when Allah rules, when Allah judges, there is nothing that can withstand that judgment and that rule and that command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Inna Indeed, we have given to you. It is Allah who is bestowed on Allah alayhi wasallam. And there is no better form of provision or gift or blessing than the one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses to favor someone with specifically. And I say specifically because not generally, because there are blessings that Allah gives to everyone. He gives them to the righteous and the unrighteous, to the Muslims and the non-Muslims, to the people who are good and pious. Allah gives them to everything, everyone. And, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them to everyone. But then there are certain blessings that Allah specifies to people and to certain portions of his creation, the greatest of them being Iman. That Allah chooses people to have Iman. As Allah says in the Quran, that the people of Jannah will say when they enter into Jannah, All praise is due to Allah who guided us to this, and we would never have been guided to it, were it not for the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning Allah chose us. And Allah blessed us. And Allah selected for us Iman. And He bestowed this upon us. And then even within the people of Iman, Allah Azza wa blesses certain favors. Right? The greatest of those favors obviously being the favor of prophethood and the blessing of being a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But then for example, knowledge. That is a favor from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He doesn't give to everyone. He chooses people to bestow knowledge of His religion upon because it is an additional favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is why the verses and the ahadith that speak about knowledge and its virtues and the people of knowledge and their virtues are many in the Quran and in the Sunnah. Allah bestows certain, certain people. So when Allah chooses to bestow something specifically upon a person, that is a greater, higher level of 
of, of favor that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows. And the greatest of Allah's creation that is favored in that way is our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Right? And that is why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Yawm al-Qiyamah will have certain virtues that anyone from amongst the Prophets will have. For example, the greatest of all intercessions, which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam will ask Allah to begin Yawm al-Qiyamah with. And other favors that he has that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made specifically for him, Jalla fi ula. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna a'tayna. Actually, someone just uh, sent a message in Hamza saying Surah Nuh also begins with Inna, right? which, is, which is true. So Surah Nuh is the fourth one. Inna arsalna Nuhan ila qawmi. Jazakallah khair. So Allah Azza wa Jal says, Inna a'tayna. Indeed, we have given to you, bestowed upon you, favored you with. Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullahu ta'ala says that Al-Hassan, and this is one of the um, qira'ahs that isn't mutawatir. It's not a mutawatir qira'ah, but it is meaning it's not a qira'ah that we read with today. It's not a recitation that we use today, but it is reported that Al-Hassan al-Basri rahimahullahu ta'ala used to read this verse and he would say, Inna antaynaka with the noon, nara'in. Na'a'taynaka antaynaka. And both of them, the scholars of tafsir say, mean the same thing. Both of them mean the same thing. And it's also reported that Umm Salama radiallahu anha, um, one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, not in the verse, but she said with the same meaning of giving, she used the noon, antayna. Right? So it's the same thing, but it is a different, um, you know, a different word that is used also to mean to give. So Al-Hasan al-Basri, Rahimahullah used to say, Antaynaka. But the recitation that is well known and mutawatir is, A'taynaka. Al-Kawthar. Indeed, we have given to you Al-Kawthar. Al-Kawthar in the Arabic language comes from the root word of Kathir, right? which means much or many or abundant, depending on the context of the word. And it follows the Wazan of Fawal right, in the Arabic language. And in the Arabic language, you have the root word, and then you have different variations of the root word in the noun form. And I'm trying to explain this in a way that will make sense. Yeah. And whenever it is added to the, the noun is expanded upon in Arabic, you have ways of showing that it is something more. So, for example, like we said, that's a good example, Rahmah. Rahmah means mercy. But Allah Azza wa Jal is called Rahim. Rahim means most merciful. The names of Allah is Rahman, which is one who has even more mercy than Rahim. Right? So the Arabic word is very eloquent in this way. In English, it is very hard to, to um, give that full meaning because often, often we translate the word in exactly the same way, right? We just say merciful, merciful, merciful. But in Arabic, it is actually a, a form of emphasis and eloquence to show that one is more of something than the other, right? So likewise, kathir is the same. You have kathir and then you have kawthar, which means kathir is much, right? It's a lot anyway. Kawthar is more than this, right? It is in this. An example of this in another word is nafil. Nafil means? Yeah. 
what he said, voluntary. Right? And no fell is more. Right? No fell is also a name. No fell. Right? So you have nafal and then you have no fell. So when you add that wow and you increase that word, it shows that it is something which is more. And by the way, that's something which the Arabs do. If the root has an additional word that it's added, a letter, sorry, that it's added to the root word, it shows that it is more of something. Hassan, Hassan. Right? You have Hassan and then you have Hassan. Hassan is more than Hassan because you've added an extra letter into it. Right? And so forth. The, um, and the Arabs used to use this in the Arabic, in, in, their, normal, in their normal speech. Kothar is a, is, a, is a word that the Arabs use in their everyday speech. Sufyan said that it was said to an elderly woman whose son came back from a, a travel, a trade expedition. He went to trade, to buy and sell. She was asked, what did your son come back with? She said, al-Kothar, meaning with plenty of wealth, right? with lots of money, lots of profit. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna a'atayna kothar Yes, oh yes. I don't know actually, it says Sufyan, and I don't remember now which. But normally in the books of, um, in the books generally, if it says Sufyan by itself, it is authority. Yeah. Um, Indeed, we have given to you al kothar Al-Kawthar, as we said in the translation in the English, for example, some scholars who just, just said Al-Kawthar, so they just literally wrote Al-Kawthar in English because there is a difference of opinion as to what it refers to. There are others who took what seems to be the, you know, the most common opinion because it's the one that's, that most of the hadith speak about, and that is that it is a river in paradise. It is the name of the river of the Prophet wasallam in Jannah in paradise. And then there are others who, like Professor, just took the linguistic meaning, the linguistic translation, the linguistic meaning, and that is that Al-Kawthar refers to an abundance of good. And there's a reason why he did that as well, and that's something which we will come on to, inshallah, next week. And the reason why I say next week is because Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, when he comes to the word Al-Kawthar, he gives how many opinions? Not 40, not that bad. 16. One six opinions, sixteen opinions, or sixteen different statements of the scholars as to what al kothar means, right? Al kothar and what it may mean, and who said what, and so on. So, because there's sixteen of them, I think it's best that we leave that, inshallah, until next week, and then inshallah we can go through them, and then we can see how, if we can reconcile between them and where, what they will come down to, and what then the scholars of tafsir, who came after these scholars, said was the strongest of those opinions and the most likely and the hadith which the Prophet speaks about this river in Jannah called Al-Kawthar. Any questions? Any? Yeah. Is there any authentic um, benefits of reciting this surah or any authentic sort of times? Uh, for Surah Kawthar? So Naveed's asking, are there, is there any narration that speaks about reciting this surah at a specific time or any virtues of reciting this surah? Not that I know of, not that I came across, unless someone else knows something. No, but that's not a virtue of the surah or a time, that's like... Hurting people in our home country suggests that we recite it when we cross 
when you cross a body of water. Yeah, that is, that is most, most uh, I don't even need to research that one. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. So you're speaking about this person, like the, why the 16? Okay. Okay. So, so the question is a good question, and that is, if the Prophet didn't mention something or did mention something concerning the seer of a verse, why is it that scholars would come, maybe you know, a few generations later, maybe even a couple of centuries later, and then give other opinions, right? And one of the reasons in tafsir why that happens is because is what the Prophet said in relation to the tafsir of a verse, is it exclusive meaning or not? Or is it only by way of example? And a good example of that is this 16 different opinions that we have here for al kawthar Because the Prophet hadith mentioned al kawthar as being a river in Jannah. And they are authentic. Some of them in Al-Bukhari, some of them in Muslim and so on and so forth. The question therefore is, is that the only or the exclusive tafsir of Al-Kawthar? Or is that only an example of what Al-Kawthar can mean? If Al-Kawthar, for example, the scholars like Professor Hanim and others who said that it is abundance of good, can it not therefore include Al-Kawthar and other than Al-Kawthar as well? Is the good only limited, the abundance of good that Allah gave, only limited to this river? And so therefore the issue is not so much of because the Prophet said something that we don't really you know, go into it uh, or, or expand more upon it. It's because this is the issue. Did the Prophet and sometimes when the Prophet gives a tafsir, he gives it in a very, is what, what it means, right? Like for example, the verse in which, um, in which uh, the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, which she says, or Messenger, of, or the hadith of Bakr radiallahu anha, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about people who mix Iman with with, not with kufr, but with, uh, with, uh, with sins, right? And he says, who from amongst us doesn't do that? And the Prophet said, no, that's not what it's referring to. This is what it's referring to. So now that's a very clear tafsir. Whereas otherwise, the Prophet is saying that Allah Azza wa gave me a river in Jannah called Al-Kawthar. But does that mean that that is the only goodness that Allah Azza wa gave to the Prophet when he says, we have given to you Al-Kawthar, abundance? Is it specific to that? Or is it more general? And that is why you have the differences of opinion. And that's why I said, inshallah, at the end, when we speak about what the scholars of Tafsir said in terms of choosing from those 16 opinions and trying to reconcile between some of those uh, opinions, we'll see what they no, say. I just want to say, as long as it doesn't contradict it. Yeah, because the, the, the Tafsir of the Prophet doesn't necessarily have to be restrictive. Anyone else? Any? Yeah, so we mentioned, right, you have Ibn Taymiyyah said one thing, Imam Tabari said one thing. Is that what you're referring to? 
So Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, and others, they will mention these different opinions. They don't necessarily choose one. And I think that's because, and Allah knows best, is because they're actually very, they're, they're the same, they're very similar. It's just that they've chosen to. We said the central issue is there's repetition. Why is that repetition occurring? And they've just given their different opinions. Actually, whether the first two are present or future tense doesn't actually change the meaning. Right? They are just saying, and they're saying the same thing, they've just switched the order. So uh, that's why the scholars will give these like different opinions. And remember also, Qalub will mention every opinion because some of them came earlier, some of them came later, and so on and so on. Okay, inshallah. So next week we are here uh, because the clocks are changing. So from now on, inshallah, uh, until Ramadan, our lessons will be after Salat al-Maghrib. So between Maghrib and Isha. So Maghrib next, inshallah. And so the class will start at about 8.15, pray Maghrib and we'll set up and we'll start, inshallah. And it will last until Salat al-Isha. And that will continue, <laughs> that will continue on, inshallah, until Ramadan. And this weekend we have uh, Sheikh Walid coming to Birmingham uh, for his course on Dua and Dhikr 24-7 and that is inshallah starting on Friday evening, free Friday, University of Birmingham and then the weekend course inshallah I highly encourage all of you to um, attend inshallah ta'ala it will be inshallah an amazing course. Anything else? Okay. Barakallahu feekum. Muslim bin Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi